Hi there, welcome back to the business side of fitness. This is your host, Vanessa Severiano. Each week on the show, we'll highlight fitness industry experts to learn about their personal journey and unique perspective. Through these conversations, we'll learn all about what it really takes to succeed in fitness. This show is brought to you by Vanessa Severiano LLC, specializing in fitness and wellness business development for impactful brands. The time has come to start the show. Everyone's got a story, and now it's time to hear from this week's guest. Let's welcome to the show, Randy Kane. He's an entrepreneur turned investor with over 25 years of experience building, managing, and investing in leading growth companies. At Profec Partners, Randy identifies unique businesses in the health and wellness sector with potential for scale and provides growth capital to early stage companies from their inception through traditional venture capital investments. Welcome to the show, Randy. Thanks, Vanessa. I'm so excited to talk to you today. <laughs> we, <laughs> Me too. Actually, we actually, just for everybody listening, we actually had a conversation the other day that ended up going two and a half hours. And I said, oh, wow, I wish I recorded this conversation, but now I'll have a follow up. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So, Randy, and we've shared, known each other for a while. So, yeah, we have. We actually used to kind of work together, right? I guess you would say. Sort of on a partnership. We right. work on a partnership together. Through the fitness business, which is a small and incestuous world. So like I always say, never burn a bridge because you never know when you're going to come across somebody again and you can always work together. There's always potential for collaboration in the future. I think that remarkably applies through all businesses, strangely enough, especially when you take a major career turn and you're using pieces of your former experience. I think it's truly important. Amen. So Randy, you started your career off in finance and now you're in fitness. How did that happen? Share that journey with us. <laughs> so technically I was in fitness first because when I was in college, high school and college, I was uh, a competitive swimmer, you know, nationally ranked. Um, so I spent uh, four and a half hours a day, six days a week in a pool, um, which you asked me in our last conversation if I still do that. And I was like, no, <laughs> I, I got enough of my time in. Um, my oldest son is, uh, was captain of the varsity swim team in high school. So my, my closestness to that is me coaching him, you know, in between races. But um, so, yeah, I graduated from undergrad business school, um, went into a financial analyst program at an investment bank, um, did that for a couple of years, got another job at, at that investment bank, uh, ultimately left and went to work for Morgan Stanley in an area that evaluated the risk about tech companies generally uh, at the time going public. You know, is it a good risk for Morgan Stanley? Is it not a good risk for Morgan Stanley? And what I found was that the thing that really interested me was the differences between the companies, the strategies, how they reacted in the marketplace, and the financial number crunching was less interesting to me. Um, I didn't know how to deal with it then. And I didn't know really what consulting firms did, but I sort of saw a number of the companies that I was thinking were, were not a good risk and thinking, wait, if you did these two things, you'd be a great company. But since I was in the process of saying no to some CEO, he wasn't in the process of listening to me or she. And um, so I think 
I saw consulting as a way to, to change that. And I did some private consulting for about, I left Morgan Stanley and did some private consulting um, actually with my father for about four years. Um, I like to say that financially that was very rewarding, emotionally, not, not so much so. Um, and uh, I love my dad, but working with him was not a fun experience. So, um, but what I really wanted to do is build something. I sort of felt, like, wow, I just touched being an entrepreneur. Let's examine that. And I interviewed at a lot of big consulting firms with the thought that I could build a practice inside those firms. And ultimately, I deferred some of those offers and declined others. And long and the short of it is um, myself and my, at that point, future business partner, he and I met he was partners with these two other gentlemen. They had this small consulting practice for about three years. They brought me in to sort of, hey, how do we grow this? Um, six months later, we realized that we don't grow this because the other two partners were not really valuable in any way. And the two of us dissolved that company. And um, this gentleman and I co-founded a management consulting firm. And this was back in February, 1998. Um, and ultimately, I ran that company from inception to um, exit for about 16 and a half years. We grew the company to about 60, 65 employees, did um, a lot of different things, but not typical for a small consulting firm. So we did strategy work, you know, the likes of McKinsey and Bain and BCG, and we did you know, integration, if, you know, one of our clients, Pfizer, bought YF, we managed the financial integration of the two companies. So very large projects. We competed very handily. And what I found and learned through that process was how important culture is. To us, and I was more the vision of the firm. My business partner was more like step-by-step -step CFO execution of the firm. Both of us selling business, both of us, um, you know, very different from each other, which, which was sort of the yin and the yang of the business, which I think is important in a partnership. Um, and so we were doing very well. I was becoming increasingly less and less challenged by the business, um, as, especially as the company grew. There were more operational HR type things that I don't know anybody that's really thrilled with uh, as an entrepreneur, but you, know, you kind of take it. Um, and so maybe about five years before I sold the business, I started a practice more because I saw a future problem relating to culture that was going to happen. I wanted to solve it, a way to drive revenue in the company without growing the employee base of the company significantly. And the idea was similar to how Bain and Bain Capital operate now, but on a smaller scale, obviously, was that we would do work for early stage companies. We would take small pieces of equity um, but the same strategy and operational work that we would give to Fortune 500 clients, just they wouldn't pass cash. They would just pass that small piece of equity. And this lit me up again every day, the same way I felt when I was building the consulting firm, and I just loved this. Um, and this went on, and there were a number of us that sort of spent some time focusing on that. I managed that business, and it, it was very risk-intensive, right? I was managing the risk between our employees doing work on these early-stage companies, not getting paid immediately. And at the same time, selling traditional consulting business and managing whether some of those employees or not should spend time actually getting cash for our company, right? And, you know, 
average billing rate was, you know, north of $250, $300 an hour. It ranged from $180 to $700 an hour. So it's hard to give up that on the promise of future growth from a startup company. And the problem was, is as my business partner and I continued to sell traditional work, I became less and less available to do the early stage work that I loved. Um, so I was back to the not being challenged again and had an opportunity in uh, early 2013 to sell the company, which I took. Um, so in June, July, 2013 and first month, I was very confused about what I had just done. You know, this is a company I named and branded and hired these people and lived and breathed it for 16 years. And for some reason I had some, 1950s-esque idea that my son was going to work there. Well, I don't actually <laughs> but know you were where bored. that came from. You got bored. You wanted out anyway, but then it's like a breakup and then it happens and you're like, wait, did I want to break up with you? Yeah, very <laughs> true. Very true. And I was also talking about breakups, getting separated at, you know, a little, almost a year before that. So like there were all this kind of weird things going on in my life. But so I very quickly after about a month realized that this was a great idea and I got to spend a lot, you know, tons of time with my kids for that summer. And um, anyway, I hired a personal trainer, which I was like, I'm going to spend a lot more time back on fitness. I've been able to spend time on this. Um, and as that woman that I hired as a trainer, as we were working out two or three times a week together, got to know each other. She had these ideas about building a business, founding a business. And while she had little to no background as a, a traditional business person, she and I were wired very much the same way, the way we think about people, the way we think about growth, the way we think about the culture in a company, all these different types of things. And she had you know, uh, an experience in musical theater and, you know, had gotten into fitness instead of being a waitress type thing and was exceedingly good at it. Uh, the best I have ever seen. And so as we got to know each other, she would ask me questions. I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think about this? So I'm thinking about doing that. What do you think about this? And it kind of morphed into me helping her build this company that was her idea, that her baby from the beginning. You know, in the beginning, I was more an advisor. At some point, um, uh, two, two years later or so, I became the COO of the company um, and um, ultimately went back to being an advisor. And um, after about five and a half years, I ultimately stepped away. Um, and so in the middle of that, I also spent a year as a consultant, but full-time consultant to a um, healthcare-focused hedge fund, which gave me a huge amount of experience, not just in the healthcare industry, which I had had from consulting, but around how a hedge fund is operating and how they look at, especially on healthcare services, investment strategies, and what to access, as well as a significant network as well. And I was doing this kind of while I was helping her build and grow this company at the same time. Um, that company is called Dance Body. It's actually how you and I know each other. And then a little over a year ago, I stepped away from Dance Body full time. You know, I told the founder that I would always be there to help and advise and whatever, but stepped away full time. And one of the investors in Dance Body actually asked me to diligence another business in fitness, which I helped him for a few weeks. And he then ultimately said, look, this was great. And what I'd like to do is give you a bunch of capital. 
uh, we can put it into some kind of fund and you can run it. And so we spent about two and a half months structuring how this would work and, you know, where my experience set was and what I thought was appropriate for the market. And in July 2019, we launched this fund. Um, and Profect Partners, as you aptly said, uh, is focused on making investments in the health and wellness industry. And that certainly includes fitness. It includes technology in the, in the space as well. It can include consumer products like activewear for fitness and things like that. It can be healthcare. I probably wouldn't have anything to do with therapeutics or devices just because my experience isn't strong enough there, but healthcare services definitely. And it can be different, uh, different things within that space, you know, wellness, spaces and ideas and i haven't made any cbd investments um oh my gosh my linkedin inbox is filled with cbd investment opportunities my office is filled (laughs) with cbd samples that companies keep sending me so people around my office keep coming in to get use the samples it's like i've become a dispensary without the intention of it um and so but no, and so I've, I've done this uh, now for about a year. I'm actually uh, midway into the process of raising a second fund, which will be significantly larger. And it's very much a growth or, growth or private equity fund. It's not a venture fund. And I, I'm emphatic about that. And I have three, three basic principles behind that. Um, one, I will not invest in any company that competes with Dance Body. Um, I wouldn't do it to um, Katya, the founder, and I wouldn't. Uh, and, and frankly, Dance Body is the best there is in this in the space. So why would I ever invest in number two? Yeah, and you spent five years building it. Why would you compete against it? Exactly, I would never do it. And I've had the opportunity. People have come to me asking, and I just said, frankly, no. Um, number two, it has to be in that health and wellness spectrum, like I talked about. And number three, I have to be able to identify. Because a lot of what I'm making an investment in is the people, right? And so I have to identify a gap in that company where my experience or people in my network or the team I'm building, that experience can actually close that gap faster than a normal trajectory of a company and and help essentially that company and in turn helping the investment I make. Um, And so all three of those things have to work together. I think venture firms, I think the venture capital model for has been broken for a long time. I think it's um, the size of the team that manages a fund is usually, not in every case, but usually too small to help the 25 or so companies they're investing in. Therefore, they get on a board call once a quarter and they open their Rolodex or network to the entrepreneurs. But other than that, there's nothing. Yeah, there's no support. I want to dive in and support them. I want to dive in and be a a strategy consultant for them. Uh, And it's interesting because I vacillate back and forth between wearing an investor hat and wearing an entrepreneur slash strategy consultant hat. And I think that's that's my job. Randy, what are some of those gaps that you've been dealing with in some of the businesses that you've invested in? Some of them have to do with technology, how to better use technology. And I'll give some examples as I go along. You know, let's say a fitness company, a very timely example, a fitness company wants to get into digital as opposed to their brick and mortar business that shut down. I think a lot of companies, forget about Zoom, if they want their own platform, a lot of companies, they either will outsource to a company that exists or they will think in their minds, oh my God, we can't do this. Peloton spent, you know, 
a couple million dollars building a production studio that they put a spinning studio inside of. We don't have that capital. How do we do this? And in reality, that's not what it takes. I think, you know, my background and experience with technology has led me to look at things slightly differently. There, I have this sort of internal mantra all the time that there has to be a different way. There has to be a better way. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to find it out. Um, and in fact, uh, with Dance Body, um, Katya and I launched Dance Body at Home, their streaming platform, which is now called Dance Body Live, um, more than four years ago. So very, very early. And unlike other companies, we A, did not spend millions of dollars doing it. B, we wholly owned the platform, which was really important because it meant we could control everything and that we could also customize anything the way we needed it to, which was very helpful as we morphed through the years. And number three, we could see the data behind it. And we did all of that for less than 50 grand. Yeah. And there's a lot of revenue share opportunities. There's different ways. I, I like yep. what you said about there, there could be a better way. I always say there's, there's always a way. There is, Absolutely. You just Absolutely. have to find it. It's tasked to you to find it. And, and you're right. Yep. A lot of fitness businesses think, oh my gosh, I have to make a $50,000 investment to compete. And you don't. There's always no, you have- other ways of looking at it. You have to have a vision, uh, definitely. You have to, look, to be an entrepreneur in general, you have to have a vision and you have to have hustle and you have to be willing to alter that vision depending upon the trajectory of where you're going into business. You're, you're correct. Oh, 100%. So what are some of the businesses that you've invested in? I guess two good examples are Swerve Fitness, which is a um, spinning studio in New York. Um, when I made the investment, it was probably the third largest boutique spinning studio in New York City behind Soul Cycle and Flywheel. Um, talk about a gap thing. Um, I could tell both as a customer of and just understanding the market in helping build Dance Body that Flywheel was going out of business. And this was a year and a half ago to a you know a year ago type frame where I could see they were doing things having nothing to do with the pandemic. They were just doing things wrong. Their culture was off, a lot of things off. And so I felt that if Swerve could get their model out to a larger marketplace faster and better, as Flywheel was tailing down, there was a large market share for them to grab. And I'm simplifying this. And um, now SoulCycle is getting destroyed in the press. So there's even a bigger opportunity for Swerve. You are 100% <laughs> right. And their top instructors are leaving in droves. And that goes back to the thing I talked about when we were building Dance Body. Culture. And, and my consultant, culture is king, right? It's, and it's not an afterthought. And everybody thinks it's so hard. Everybody that has an existing company thinks it's so hard to build a great culture. It isn't. It just takes time. It's kind of like parenting. Things don't happen instantly. You have to work at it every single day, technically forever right? And, and the payoffs come every so often. You see them both with parenting and building a culture. And you have to be willing to change things and adapt to things and listen to people. And they're little things all along. It's not one big heavy lift. And I think it is singularly the most challenging and the most important thing in a company to success. And something I look at through a diligence process and in making investments. So Swerve is, is one of the investments, um, the largest investment I have. Another one, uh, which I made about 
11 months ago was in a company called Playbook, which is a video. It's like YouTube, but for content creators in the fitness business, they are doing exceedingly well right now. <laughs> they Obviously. are. My former colleague, Sean, works with um, the team at Playbook and they're up, they're up yeah. to some great stuff. And I know they just yes, got a, a great investment um, yep. recently and they're making some big moves and they've changed. I, th- yep. I think they've changed um, a lot of the way that content is created because they kind of took away that divide. They said, hey, content creators, you can create your own content from the from your phone. You don't have to go to a professional studio. It's a lot more accessible. And I think that's, you know, attributed to their success for sure. Yep. And that goes along with exactly what I said. There has to be a different way to do this. Right. And, you know, every other sort of content aggregator in fitness from class pass and their sort of defunct streaming platform to uh, Forte and others, you don't own the content. The, the company that provides the filming owns the content. So you're losing that asset, number one. Um, and number two, you still get the lion's share of the revenue. Um, they help you market it. And it's very much like a YouTube content creator. If you look at someone like Casey Neistat, he makes these videos and they're incredibly popular and he has an incredible following behind it, a loyal following. And YouTube's algorithm knows that. So their ad placement that they can place against that is very valuable. And he shares in that revenue. Playbook is the similar kind of concept, right? They do it on a subscription model, but it's a shared thing depending on how popular that content creator is. And it's a great app. Um, And so Jeff and I met about a year ago and I just felt out of everything I had seen in fitness, it was among the best out there. So those are two examples. Well, those are two great examples. So if somebody's listening to this podcast, uh, Randy, and they're thinking, oh, I have a business that I want to secure investment for, you know, I'm ready to take my business to the next level, or I'm thinking of starting something, what would you recommend to them? What are some key takeaways that they could implement? So, you know, I think a lot of people want to see, uh, from an investor standpoint, a lot of people want to see a pitch deck and a and or a business plan or financials and all the typical things. And I think those things are important, specifically a pitch deck, which tells the story and exactly what makes them different and the financials that can back it up. I think it has to be realistic. It has to be flexible. They have to be incredibly passionate about it and they have to be willing to understand that they are not necessarily unique but why they can attack an existing space gap problem whatever it might be from a different perspective like what makes it better um and showcasing that how they've learned that is incredibly valuable right if i if i look at a company like swerve SoulCycle has spinning classes and they have instructors that they sort of quote celebritize and arguably lately are not doing a good job. Um, (laughs) And Flywheel took a different tack to it. They were much more competitive. They had a leaderboard in their studios where, you know, you had to, you know, try to be up on that leaderboard and it was much more competitive mindset. Um, I remember the first Flywheel class I ever took was right after a friend of mine had sold her company to Flywheel and she was the instructor 
and I had just come back from sort of major knee surgery. Oh gosh. And you're at the bottom of the leaderboard and you're like, this is very humbling. (laughs) Right. I was not supposed to push myself. And the second that leaderboard came up, I was like, oh my God, I'm not going to finish last. And like, I just pushed and the instructor started yelling at me through the microphone in the class. So, but anyway, it's a much more competitive mindset. Swerve has an entirely different take of something that doesn't exist elsewhere. And that is, it, it is competitive, but they can do anything that Flywheel or Slow Cycle can do. But more importantly, they focus on team. They focus on their culture as a team, as a company, and they translate that to their customers. So their clients, when they book a bike, they can book on one of three teams. They can book with their friends on different teams than their friends, whatever they want, red, blue, or green. And in the class, while you see your individual statistics on the, on the technology that's sitting on the bike, on the screens next to the instructor, you're seeing how your team is doing. Right? I love that. Who's in the advance. And there's different challenges. And in fact, they actually took this concept and opened one of their three New York City studios in Midtown Manhattan, 46th Street between Fifth Avenue and Madison, where there is no other fitness spaces nearby. And so employees on their lunch hour, before work, right after work for happy hour, they'd come there. And they built the space to, ha- to be able to have space to hang out, have a protein smoothie, have conversations, have business events, which grew to be 15, 20% of their business, to do this significant team approach. And translating that into a culture as a community is a very easy thing to do when you're consistently focused always on team, right? Not, not the individual, but as part of a team, right? And so I, I look for things like that. And I think as an entrepreneur, you, you, none of this comes easy. And you have to be open to advice and you have to understand that you are going to make soul-sucking mistakes, but you have to own them and you have to learn from them. And you have to be 100% in, 100% of the time. You know, so there's a lot of intangibles that I can see and a lot of things that I think are ridiculous that just make no sense to me. When I see some spin, I'm just using spinning as another example, when I see some spinning instructor who's at you know, SoulCycle and they decide to open their own studio and raise money and brand everything and do this, they don't have a clue as to how to run a studio. They don't have a clue as to how to ingratiate culture. They're nothing more than a fad. And, and I would never invest in something like that because there's no efficacy to it. Um, so those are the sort of intangible things I look at. And then it has to have you know, some hard facts about business. You know, when, when Katya had this idea for Dance Body, it was very much about she built and was constantly perfecting the workout, which works. I used to say when I would take the classes, that this was the best workout outside of swim practice that I have ever done in my life. And that is a big statement, right? Um, If you look at it, you know, professional tennis players like Roger Federer and professional football players, they take dance for movement, right? And that, that movement translates into multiple skills and multiple sports, right? So she was constantly perfecting that workout and constantly handling 900 other things at the same time with a lot of thought into them, right? And I look for investments like that. I look for people like the three founders of Swerve that are just remarkable humans 
and really smart and very talented and fully vested in their company and the culture and the people, right? And, and that comes out in times like this. And they have to be a leader. You know, Randy, I, I, I see so many people that have interesting ideas and concepts, but it's like, you have to be a leader. You have to be, you know, not just a part of the pack. You have to be the leader of the pack because yep. you can be as excited and as enthusiastic as you can be, but you're one person. You can't build and scale a company alone. You have to be willing to get others to buy into you and then, you know, also be able to manage different personalities, get everybody moving in the same direction. I mean, there's so many different nuances of running a, a business, let alone a fitness business, which is also so high touch with clients and, and whatnot right. that, you know, if you're not a leader, you're not going to make it. That's correct. And if you're not the leader in the space already, at least you have a path towards leadership. You have this goal, you have a vision and you have most of the action plans ready to go. Right. And I think that's really key. You can't just look really good on Instagram as a fitness person and think you're going to run a business. That, that makes me crazy. Work. It makes me cuckoo yep. when I see people doing that. I'm like, okay, I'm sorry. Just because you have a certain amount of followers, don't think that you're necessarily going to build a tangible business, which brings me to my next thing that I wanted to talk about. Um, I think a lot of people you know, judge the success of a business by how much it scales. So I have one location, now I want to have three, and that's going to equate to success. Um, yep. It's just you know, do you think that every business should be scaling and, and look at it that way? Um, short answer is no. Um, there are some businesses that, um, let's talk pre-pandemic first. Um, there are some businesses that simply don't have a demographic to scale, right? If I look at a fitness business like the class, you know, Taryn Toomey is the class. You know, Taryn's incredible. She's built this business. She has a great following the demographic that she generally attracts, you know, obviously there's some gray area, but it, it's not a massive demographic. It's not like there's 3 billion people here and I'm going to get 2% of it. it. It just isn't that. Um, but the people that go to her workout and the community that she's fostered believe in her. And I, and I respect that tremendously. Um, and then there's other businesses that think that they're going to scale tremendously and make it up on volume we'll call it the crazy Eddie theory. And, and that doesn't work either. Right. And so you have to look at what you're doing. Now the pandemic obviously changed the focus on scale a little bit, right. As fitness companies or even tech companies or healthcare services companies focused on the digital spectrum that allows them a much broader reach um, it allows them to find a demographic outside where their studio is located or outside where their company is normal, normally servicing companies. Um, I think that's a really big deal. Um, and I think, but again, at the same time that this pandemic happened, all the people we just spoke about that think that they can be fitness influencers jumped into this. And it just, the space of digital fitness became so noisy that to market yourselves above it takes a Herculean effort that doesn't work unless you have something special, right? And that gets back to who the people are that founded and run the company. So no, all businesses shouldn't scale. I think as an, and that's the entrepreneur hat I'm wearing. The investor hat is, 
I kind of have to see them scale, right? (laughs) They have to scale in some way, right? It doesn't mean that they have to open multiple studios. Maybe there's a different way. Maybe there's a way to create a program that people can do at home, whether digital or not. Maybe there's a merchandise line. I'm making things up. Maybe there's a partnership with some company that can help do it. That they have to greatly appreciate their value as a company for me to look at them to make an investment, right? Because that's that's the game here. I don't. It's not the Peace Corps, right? Where it's for the good of human beings. It's, it's for at the profit. base of it. Well. <laughs> It is an investment fund. And I, I care very much about entrepreneurs and I've been one for most of my career at this point, but they still have to make money. Yeah, of course. So what's something that stops businesses from growing? What are you seeing, you know, businesses that you've worked with or businesses that have approached you? What stops them from getting to that next step? Um, again, short answer, stupidity, <laughs> uh, of which there seems to be a lot of that. Um, you can walk around and see everybody not whoever's not wearing a mask. They fall into that demographic. Um, so I think, um, but aside from that, I think what stops them is short-sightedness. I think it is very hard, especially when you're an early stage company, to have long-range vision. And by long-range vision, I do not mean five years from now. I mean a goal that may be five years from now, but have an understanding of how to take a step in that direction in the next month, next two months, next six months, and understand those things while not making it ironclad. Being willing to change, right? Being willing to be flexible, being willing to grow organically, not have to have the bright, shiny, marketable object immediately, but find a way to prove yourself first. I think all of those things um, are important and the people that don't have those qualities ultimately do not have the ability to make this work. Um, And and those are the simplest answers, right? Oh, one more actually. You have to be, and frankly, this is something I learned from Katya in watching her do, right? You know, she didn't have this business background. She opened up, and asked for advice constantly, not not just for me, from anybody she could reach out to. And she assimilated that advice into a decision. It She didn't do what they said, which is very similar to me. Like I, I always said when I started this consulting firm, I was gonna hire the best and the brightest, people smarter than me. I never wanted to be the smartest person in the room. I wanted to have people around me that were smarter and better but I was really good at taking their knowledge and making decisions from it that were good for the vision of the company. So I think people that can't do that from an entrepreneur standpoint are generally not going to succeed. Right. I, I think you have to stay true to your vision because everybody has an opinion, right? I mean, I'm, I'm definitely opinionated, but like you have to stay true to your vision and take other people's uh, opinions or feedback or perspective, which is definitely very, very valuable. You never want to undermine somebody's uh, experience based on you know what they've gone through, but you have to take that and you know take it with a grain of salt. Apply it to you know what it applies to, and don't take it as a 
big sweeping vision of like, okay, now I should just do what this person's saying and then do what this person's saying. I have worked with entrepreneurs that are constantly getting feedback from people and literally people that have no idea about business, they're going ahead and taking... Their, their feedback and unsolicited <laughs> advice and listening to it. And I've worked at businesses where they're like, oh, go ahead, let's start doing this. And I'm like, why? Because somebody got in your ear and made one complaint. Now the whole business is changing the structure. No, that's not Correct. a true visionary or a true entrepreneur. You have to take that and say, okay, let me think about that. Let me get some other people's opinions on that same topic and then arrive to a conclusion that I arrived to on my own, not just because somebody got in my ear. Correct. You're 100% correct. And I think an important part of that is how that tidbit of information impacts the future, not the right now, not the tomorrow, but the future. And if you can stay true to that, I think that really allows you to stay on the path towards your general vision, right? I I think that's really key. You know, if, if all of a sudden you make a price change, there are going to be people that complain. You cannot make 100% of the people 100% happy 100% of the time. It, it is an impossible task. Don't be you in the shoot. service business if you need to operate that way. I don't think it can be in any business, frankly, because someone that makes widgets is going to get a complaint from somebody that buys widgets. And ultimately, it's, they're not going to be happy. And some of it's nonsensical, right? You know, I think, you know, like we were talking earlier like about this whole back to school process, right? I, I am voraciously reading everything I can get my hands on about colleges reopening because my oldest son is going to going to college, right? And I frankly think that where he's going to school is doing among the best jobs of any school in the country, right? I just think the way that they're approaching it and from a health perspective and from a safety perspective and from an education perspective. And yet I I kind of hate Facebook and I'm forced to go onto it. I was forced to go onto Facebook for like when we launched Dance Body streaming platform. And now I'm forced to go on it again for these class of 24 college things. And the things you are hearing from some of these people, I don't understand why Governor Cuomo is making these restrictions on people. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I'm thinking do you like evolve in this world? Do you, do you understand what has gone on? Do you understand where New York was and where it is now? And like, what do you mean? Yeah, you're just in, I mean, definitely Facebook is a great example of just being inundated with opinions. And I think that's something that's, you know, it kind of drives me crazy. Sometimes I I look at it as just noise. I honestly tune it out for what it is. Um, promoting, yeah. connecting with people. If somebody is just like super, you know, one way or the other, uh, very strong opinions, I kind of like, okay, that's, it is what it is, but I don't read it and obsess about it. I think a lot of people get caught in the matrix. And I think, you know, you could do that in your personal life in, on Facebook or in business. One thing that I've right. seen a lot of people kind of get in their own way as far as scaling is they don't understand that you have to have systems that are you can duplicate, right? It's something that you can repeat. It has to be repeatable. And what is successful in one brick and mortar location or with one small group uh, uh, demographic, like you had mentioned earlier, is not necessarily applicable for future, you know, 
a business opportunity, subsequent locations and whatnot. And you have to have your system, you have to have your back of house in order before you can scale. And a lot of people are just so focused on scaling. And then what ends up happening is there's a total mess in the back end side, and then somebody's going to clean it up if you want to thrive, if you want to succeed and, and, and have longevity in this business. Absolutely correct. That, that's absolutely correct. I think, yeah, I think, you know, you have to, you have to be as an entrepreneur that is going to be successful. You have to be willing to, to tackle challenges as they face you. They're obviously all not going to be as large as a global pandemic, right? That's, that, that is causing some companies now to rise to the top, right? It's, it is literally ripping off the top cover of what a company is made of. You know, you talked about SoulCycle, how it's just a disaster. All of that stuff, while they were churning around, you know, 60 people in every class, 10 classes a week, every single one of 99 studios, you couldn't see under the covers. Well, you see under the covers. That was bubbling underneath the surface and now it's out in the open for everyone to see. Yeah. Right. Right. And, you know, know, I I personally don't go to SoulCycle. I don't think the workout is designed for me. I have tremendous respect for the two founders. They, they built a brand and community that is truly uh, um, a mark of respect in my, in my opinion. It's global. Um, Listen, you have to kind of tip your hat to that. Even without the scale, what they did was remarkable. The fact that they can sell laundry detergent in their studios to wash workout clothes is something that talks to their community, right? And that's great. And the fact that people get up off the rear end and go to a soul cycle class, good workout or not, and they're moving, I, I, I cannot commend that highly enough. That being said, uh, the culture that exists there now, which obviously you have to fault the ownership and leadership, which comes from Equinox, and Equinox is having their own problem and their own things. And similarly- Destroyed in the press, destroyed. And it's shockingly that the same thing has happened in SoulCycle and they own them, right? So it tells you where it's coming from. And so that has been bubbling there for years. It's, it's unacceptable. The, the thought that you could have the people that clean your studio um, wear a different t-shirt than the people that work at the front desk, that, that is unacceptable. In, it's, forget about the protests that are going on in this world. That's unacceptable in the world. Yeah, but they're going to justify it. They're going to say, well, that person is easily identifiable. So if a member yeah. well, needs let me, help, let me then they that. know that's what they're going to say. Well, let me answer that question for you right there, Vanessa, because this goes back to the culture thing we were talking about. When you have a company and you have a great culture, anybody in that company should be able to answer any question or get you to the person that can answer that question better. It doesn't matter what you Yeah, it's an all-hands-on-deck. There shouldn't be a caste system within your organization. No. Like, when I, was, when I was the acting COO of Dance Body, if someone came into that studio and wanted their water bottle refilled, I didn't go say, oh, ask that person with the green T-shirt. I took their water bottle and I filled it and said, you're welcome. Like, it, the mindset to think that because you've elevated yourself to a studio manager or CEO or something else that you can't do the stuff that made the company get a start. That is unacceptable in a company, right? And to look at the people that work in your company. I looked at the people that worked in my consulting company every day as that without them, there would be no company, right? And if you think differently, you are very, 
very challenged in your growth prospect. And it's what so, you talked about earlier. When you look at a company, you look at the people and it, that's, that's why, right? because the people make up the business. You're investing in the people. You're not just investing in a piece in of numbers. paper or a concept or numbers. Like the numbers can't come to life without the people. And a lot of people fail to realize that. A lot of businesses fail to realize that. I do think, you know, listen, I, I worked for Equinox and I had a very I personally had a, a good experience. Um, for the most part, there was definitely a tremendous amount of pressure, but obviously they were in a huge growth mode. I think when I was there, there were like 20 something locations and now there's about a hundred. So, you know, there's a reason why businesses scale, but I think when you're scaling, you cannot lose sight of the people that are getting you there. So, you know, I mean, when we talk about systems, right. obviously a, a big business needs those systems, but it also, you know, you can't lose that human touch. And when you do, you get destroyed in the press. So, yeah, I mean, if I go, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. If I, if I go back to, you know, this is outside of health and wellness, but I go back to building this consulting company when we had about 35 consultants or so, I realized that we were going to have a problem. I talked about this earlier, that there was this problem I identified that didn't exist yet. And this talks about the vision, right? And that was, if you look at a consulting company or frankly, lawyers, accounts, any service model, you can only, there's 24 hours in a day. You have a certain number of consultants and you have a billable rate per hour, right? And if you multiply those three, that's your revenue, right? And you can't go more than 24 hours a day. You can hire more consultants or you can raise your billing rate. At some point, your clients are not going to pay the billing rate. If I focus this on a fitness class, clients are not going to pay $150 to come to a fitness class. It's just not going to happen, right? So the marketplace is, is sort of setting the, the caps on those pricing, just like it does on billable rates at a consulting firm. By the same token, if I actually have a consultant that is not sleeping and working 24 hours a day and billing seven days a week and billing, you know, $300 an hour, the only way to make more money is by hiring more consultants. Most people think that's fine. That's great. We'll just grow. We'll double in size. We'll double our revenue. Oh, but the reality more is people. <laughs> it's not just that, but it's actually maintaining the culture that you built that allowed you to be so competitive in the first place. And if your goal is to simply scale, getting back to your question, you have to consider all these other things. If I look at Accenture as a consulting firm, what are all the problems they have? Why don't I, why doesn't my consulting firm that, that I was running, why, why didn't they have those problems? We had much lower turnover rates. We had much better recruiting prospects. We had much better things inside the company that allowed us to focus on being competitive. So when I, I had about 35 employees or so, I identified this problem that was going to happen maybe when we hit 100 employees, 120 employees, and I wanted to fix it before we had the problem. And so that's kind of a combination of vision, caring about the culture, caring about the employees, looking at different aspects in the company. And I want to see entrepreneurs that can do that as well, right? I think there's plenty of successful venture capitalists, private equity investors, you know, coming from banking and funds and finance, right? And, you know, there are some incredibly brilliant people in that space, but I frankly think there are not enough people that have the true operating experience of an entrepreneur as well as larger companies and are able to assimilate all those things into making better investment decisions and better investment support. I think those are the, those are the things that I think differentiate Profect Partners and me. Um, 
is that background of experience, right? That, you know, I'll figure out anything. I'm not concerned about it. I, I don't, I don't just stay in my lane, if that makes sense. Yeah. And if you don't know the answer, you're going to go to your, your network and you have a big enough network to be able to connect with others and get, and get that information. And that's how I operate too. It's like, listen, I have a figure it out mentality. I, I know what I know. I know what I don't know too, but I, I know a lot of people. So, but you know, one thing that you brought up here um, that I'm so glad you, you discussed was the, with the scalability and, and growth, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm, you know, in my entrepreneurial journey, I've kind of faced this challenge as well. Okay. With growth, you know, I've now identified growth as, my, my scalability is by having a bigger impact. It's not by having more clients. It's let me have less clients and have a bigger impact on the clients that I work with. My mindset was let me have as many clients as possible. And I'd rather just do a, a few things really freaking well than do a lot of things mediocre. Um, and it's, you know, how do you want to be known? And when you're building a brand and, and, building a business, you have to take that into consideration. You know, what is your impact? Um, so Randy, if somebody wants to find out more, they want to connect with you, they have a business idea and they want to find out more about Profect Partners, how do they connect with you? So um, we have a website, profectpartners.com, which hired an amazing branding agency um, that I've used before to design it. Um, and there's a way to submit pitches in there. There's certainly my email, randy at profectpartners.com. Um, and um, just one word to anybody, look, you're welcome to reach out to me on LinkedIn, but I've been very careful through my career. I do not connect with people on LinkedIn that I don't know ever. Um, which makes my network more valuable to me, right? Because I, I know these people, some better than others. But, you know, if I'm speaking at a conference and 20 people come up to me and give me their business cards, I, I do not connect to those people, like in, unless I have some business type relationship. And I think that that's important. So you're welcome to reach out to me there, but send me a message and what you're looking for. And maybe we can, you know, have a call and discuss it offline. But website and my email are probably the two best ways. Oh, I love talking to you. I feel like we could go for another two and a half hour long conversation, but I don't know if everyone (laughs) wants to listen. So we're going to end it now. Thank you so much, Randy. (laughs) Yeah. And if if anybody has questions around this, they can email both of us and, you know, we can continue the dialogue. I mean, I, I think mentoring on the one hand and, you know, sharing information is a huge part of what I do and actually love it. Um, so absolutely. Oh, I love talking shop. I mean, this is just like, this is our wheelhouse here. (laughs) Well, I, I think you're terrific, Vanessa. So more than happy to. Thanks so much, Randy. Hi, everyone. This is your host, Vanessa Severiano. I have a huge favor to ask of you. If you found value in this episode, I'd love it if you would please subscribe, review, and share this episode. It would really mean so much to me. I truly love connecting with fitness and wellness experts. So if you'd like to be on the show or are looking for help in your business, definitely drop me a line and connect with me. You can find me at hello at vanessaseveriano.com or my social media handle. Since my last name is not the easiest to spell, I'm going to go ahead and make it really easy for you and link my contact details in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. Catch you on the next episode.